service. Those of you in uh, Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, so thankful that you're t- tuning in. And those of you from Skagit, it was a blast being with you last weekend, seeing some old friends, meeting some new ones, and being able to worship with you. It was a lot of fun. Here in Bellingham, it is good to have you here in this room. What an incredible week. It's a big week here at Lake Wobegon, Bellingham, Washington. We had the Global Leadership Summit, over 700 people in this room, and I couldn't have been more proud of our volunteers and our tech team for that. It was an amazing time. In addition to that, something fell from the sky last night and this morning. <laughs> something, something we haven't seen for a couple of months, which may clear the air enough to be able to see Mount Baker, which we haven't seen for a long time as well. In addition to that, <clears throat> today is the first preseason game of the Seattle Seahawks, which is a big deal. And if that's not doing it for you, tomorrow is the Demolition Derby at the Northwest Washington Fair. (laughs) And on top of that, the Ferndale U-12 boys brought home the World Championship Little League World Series Cal Ripken title. Unbelievable. And on top of that, see, it just keeps getting better. We're in week 11 of our Roman series. We've been looking at the Book of Romans throughout the entire summer. This series has been looking at one of Paul's letters, and this letter is beautiful, it's glorious, it's mysterious, it's complex, it's confusing, it's all of that. And he writes this letter to the followers of Jesus, so the Italian followers of Jesus in Rome. And what's amazing is that he didn't plant this church at the time of writing this. He has not yet visited this church. This church is made up of Jewish and Gentile followers after Jesus, which is unique. This letter is filled with more theology than any of the writings of Paul. And on top of that, as is often the case with his letters, he's dictating this to a a, a guy named uh, Tertius. And Tertius is his scribe writing these things down. Now you can imagine, as we've been spending the whole summer, Tertius probably has cramps in his hands from trying to keep up with Paul as he writes and and speaks all these things. And there have been these major kind of waves of of thought throughout the, the the letter, the first five chapters kind of all go together. Chapters 6 through 8 kind of go together. Chapters 9 through 11 go together. And over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at some of these. And it's been four weeks since I've been able to preach. And I've got this quote back, backlog of quota of words. That I don't know when we'll get out of here today. But I've got all these words stored up. And over the last four weeks... Pastor Brian and Pastor Kip did an amazing job in one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. We spent two weeks in that and walking away with this understanding that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and there's no separation from the love of Christ Jesus. What a beautiful... My biggest regret of these last four weeks is that I didn't get to preach Romans 8. It's such an amazing chapter, but those guys did a great job. And then Pastor Scott and Pastor Bill tackled chapter 9 and chapter 10, to which you're probably thinking... Are they like being punished? Was that a, something? They, is that like a Cornwall karma? They did something wrong in a former ministry, and so they were inflicted with chapter 9 and 10, rough chapters in the book of Romans. But Pastor Scott helped us understand this balance between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And then last week, Pastor Bill helped us understand how Israel had rejected this incredible good news that God had given of this righteousness from Christ that is by faith. And today, I finish up that little section, chapter 11, and what happens is at the end of chapter 11, he throws in this kind of this this aside, and then next week, as he goes to chapter 12, he makes a dramatic turn, and the rest of the book becomes extremely practical and applicable. But today, we're looking at Romans chapter 11, so if you have your Bible, your tablet, your phone, you want to follow along, 
You can turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is a part of this segment, chapter 9, 10, and 11, where he is primarily speaking to the Jewish recipients of this letter in Rome. And Romans chapter 11 is not an easy chapter at all. In fact, Timothy Keller says this, talking about Romans 11, we need to recognize that this chapter is one of the most difficult in Scripture to understand. Are you ready to tackle it? Okay, it's a good thing. Now, I will say this. Last weekend, Pastor Bill said, I would be back this weekend to answer all your questions about Israel and Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And I'm just going to ask you to pray for Pastor Bill because he lied to you. I am not going to answer all your questions. I don't have the time to answer all your questions. I don't have the mental capacity to answer all the questions. We won't even be able to address all the issues and questions in chapter 11. There simply isn't enough time. We're going to have to skip over parts of it, lots of parts of it. But I hope that as you hang with me, because there's a, a little bit of these, these threads at the end, I hope they all weave together and come to one landing point for us. So that's, that's the attempt. That's that's the goal uh, for, for this day. Now, it's been a couple weeks since we've had a quiz. It's, hint, it's the same quiz we've had all summer long. Some of you are searching right now, looking back through notes. The answer to the quiz has four words, and I think it's time that we take that quiz again, because all throughout this, this series, we've seen that Paul is talking about this righteousness, this right standing with God, this being good enough with God, that here's the four words, that is, and that this righteousness is from God. It's not from us, and it's by faith. It's not something we do. He, he pours this out in Romans 1.17, and he spends the whole rest of the letter trying to illustrate, explain, des describe what that means to have a righteousness, a right standing from God and by faith. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the Israelites, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, had rejected it. They were zealous for God. They were zealous for righteousness. But they had a misunderstanding. They had it all about themselves, and they're holding on to the law and doing all the things that, that they could do. And they reject this righteousness from God that is by faith. And yet, even in their rejection of it, God continues to pursue them. God continues to seek after them. God continues to hold out for hope to them. God continues to woo them back. In fact, the last verse of chapter 10, Paul quotes the scripture that talks about how God just, he holds out his hands to a rebellious, obstinate people. He's saying, come back. And that's where we pick up chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, I ask then, in the middle of thought, did God reject his people? By no means. That's a little phrase that he comes back to again and again. By no means. He says, I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham. We're going to look at that in just a minute. From the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. God doesn't write them off. He doesn't say, okay, you rejected me. You don't listen to me. I'm done with you. He said, I foreknew you I, in advance. You know, like, I chose you. It was, all, it was all by my grace. You're my people. And Paul says, listen, it's not like all the Israelites have rejected God. He says, I'm one. I'm an Israelite. I'm like one of the children of Abraham. So we haven't all rejected him. And then he talks about and gives this picture from the Old Testament when Elijah was kind of having this pity party, thinking that he was the only one left on earth that was following God. And God says, Elijah, you have no clue. I have 7,000 others who have never bent the knee to Baal. And there will always be a remnant. So he refers to that, basically says, I don't want to make the same mistake Elijah did. I'm not saying that all of Israel has rejected God. I haven't, and there's always going to be a remnant. But even that, he says, 
even that is about God's grace. Verse 5, he says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Grace is this theme that comes up again and again. We sang about it today. You know, all that we've done. It's, it's all by grace. It's all by God's grace. Something that we don't deserve. Something that we could never earn. It's just this unmerited favor from an incredibly good, gracious, sovereign God. And he says, the fact that there's even a remnant, even that is grace. The fact that we're even a people, even that is grace. And he said, you know, I'm a descendant of Abraham. If you were with us last summer... We spent the entire summer last year looking at the life of, of Abraham, how he was chosen, and from him would come this nation, would come a blessing for the world. But if you remember, what was special about Abraham? Was it that he was so good and upright and filled with integrity and moral character? Not necessarily. Because if you remember that series, or if you remember any of your studies of Abraham, he made some major blunders and repeated them. He wasn't a perfect specimen. Was it because he was religious? Not necessarily. He was from an irreligious family, a very pagan-oriented uh, family from a very pagan culture. What was it that Abraham had going for him? He believed God. That was it, that, and that was enough. And God chose him because of his belief. And we saw the year before in Hebrews when his righteousness was because it was credited to him by his faith. That's what he had. So let me just take you back real quickly to this Abraham and the start of the entire Israel nation and the Jewish people. When God calls him, when God chooses him, when God hand-selects him, he says this to him in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. To which Abraham says, this sounds like a great ordeal. We're going to be a great team, God. But God, there's no I in team. To which Yahweh would say, but there is an I, and I am, and I am. And I, yes, you are going to be a great nation. You are going to have a great name. You are going to be blessed. And the whole world, all people will be blessed because of you. But it's not anything that you have done. It's what I have done. It's what I will do. It's what I am doing. You just believe me. You see, it's from God by faith. Even at the start of the nation, the people of God, it was from God and it was by faith. And so he gives to Abraham this blessing. And Abraham, and he chooses him, and he builds this nation. And the whole purpose is that God would bless them so that all peoples would be blessed, not just the Israelites, all peoples on earth would be blessed. So it kind of leads to this question about Israel. Is Israel a chosen people or a choice people? To which you may say that's the same thing. No, 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 these are distinctively different. Israel a chosen people or a choice people? Let, let me tell you how I see the difference there. A chosen people, and there are many things throughout Scripture that have been chosen they're often referred to as holy. And we get this idea of, of what holy means, you know, halos and different things. Holy means set apart. A, a big fancy word, a religious word, consecrated. is when something is set apart for God's purposes. So throughout scripture, there might be utensils in the temple that are consecrated. They are holy. They are set apart 
Not for ordinary use. They are set apart for God's purposes. This is going to come into play next week, too, so, so listen up. Holy means they're set apart for God's purposes. There was the tribe, the Levitical tribe, the Levites. They were a priestly tribe. They were set apart for God's purposes. There were individual uh, men that were chosen as priests, and they were set apart for God's purposes. Israel was a nation that was set apart, holy, consecrated, set apart for God's purposes. When you are set apart for God's purposes, there's a sense of responsibility that I have been chosen for a specific purpose, for God's purpose. And for Israel, they had been set apart, chosen for God's purposes, and the responsibility was to engage the world and include the world in the blessings that God had given to them. That's what it means to be chosen. That's what it means to be set apart, to be holy, to be consecrated. To be a choice people is not about being set apart for a purpose. To be choice is to be set above, like with privilege. And when you are chosen, there's a sense of responsibility, but if, if you're choice, there's a sense of superiority. And when you're chosen for a purpose and there's a responsibility, it's, it's to engage the world. But when you're set up above with this privilege, with this superiority, it's to avoid and, and resist the world. When you're chosen for a purpose, it's to include the world in this blessing. And when you're set above, it's to exclude and become exclusive. Israel was a chosen people. But in their mind, they had become a choice people. Now here, before we slam Israel, we, and I say we as Cornwall, we as the Big C Church, we as followers after Jesus, must look in the mirror. Because while we have been saved and redeemed and forgiven by the grace with a righteousness that is from God and is by faith, and we have been chosen to be set apart, to be holy, to be for God's purposes, to engage our world and include them in the blessing, the redemption of this broken world, to redeem things and to restore things. So often it is easy for us to get a mindset that somehow we are not, we are not set apart, we're set above. And there can come an attitude. We are the ones that are right, we are the chosen ones, we are the people of God. And with that attitude can come self-righteousness, and judgment and condemnation, and that's the farthest thing from what God has saved us for. We have been saved to join in his purposes to redeem the world and to bless the world, not to judge and to condemn the world. It's not our calling. And so unless we just point the finger at Israel, we need to look in the mirror and as individuals to say, where do I have those kind of attitudes? Where's there that kind of self-righteousness in me? Where's that kind of exclusivity? And eradicate that from our minds and our hearts and our lives. Well, back to Israel. They had gotten to this point where they saw themselves as being a choice people, not just a chosen people. So in verse 11, he says, Again I ask, did they, the Israelites, his own people, did they stumble so as to, as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Like, does, does God write them off, he says. Not at all. Did they, did they get to this point where they rejected God, and so now there's no hope for them, it's lights out, they're finished. He says, no, it's sad. It's sad that they rejected this truth. It's sad that they're not walking in, in their calling and their chosenness. But here's the amazing thing, that in the midst of that, God is still sovereign, as we've seen. God is still at work. 
And the tragedy of their rejection becomes the glory of reception. This is amazing. While they reject God, and it's a tragic thing in the history, throughout. I mean, it happened repeatedly. While they've rejected God, God in his sovereignty still is able to turn that around for his glory, for others to be able to receive in the reception of his truth. Now, two weeks ago when Pastor Kip was preaching on the back half of Romans chapter 8, that was three weeks ago, excuse me, um, he referred to this verse, for some of you it's your favorite verse. Last week, Pastor Bill referred to it as well. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That God can take anything, even when we mess things up, and because he is sovereign, and because he is good, and because he is great, and because he transcends even our mess, God can take even the worst things and redeem them for his good and for his purposes. See, God's purposes will not be thwarted no matter how hard we try. God still says, all right, well, I can rework that for my good and my glory. I mean, let me, let me just kind of quickly take you back a little rabbit trail. You remember when Joseph, who had spent his whole life, you know, away in what his brothers had done, he comes to the end of his life and he says to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. God turned it around for good. What's the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity? Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to love and redeem, is killed and crucified in this execution on the cross. The worst thing ever. And yet God turns it around for his glory and for our good. God is just that, that sovereign. He's just that good. And so here's a situation where his people have yet again rejected him. And now the fulfillment of all the law in Jesus Christ, they reject that. And God says, you know what? I can still turn that around. I can still fulfill my purposes. I can still bring about glory and redemption through all of this. I can still work through this. And so, and so he does, Romans chapter 11, 11. Again, I ask, did they, the Israelites, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, and this ought to be good news to us in this room, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now, this is the bad news for Israel, but it's really good news for us. Okay, Amen. you're a Gentile. <laughs> you're like, oh, I don't know who the Gentiles are, but good for them. That's us. That is us. That, that's why this is, is such good news, that now we get to have this salvation as well, that we get to have the, 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 the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, throughout 9, 9, 10, and 11 chapters, he's been talking primarily to the Jewish recipients of the letter. At this point, he says, okay, we got that covered now. And he turns to the other half of the church, like non-Jewish people, if that helps you out, if you're still not seeing yourself as a Gentile. Non-Jewish people. So he wants to talk to them. He wants to talk to us. So in verse 13, he says this. He says, I'm talking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. This is amazing. Paul says, listen, I've been chosen. I've been called. I've been set apart for God's purpose. And it's far different than he would have ever chosen for himself. 
He says, I've been set apart for God's purpose to reach the Gentiles with the good news of this righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes from faith. And I've given my life to it. I've traveled all over Asia Minor. I've been in danger. I've, I've sacrificed my body for this. He says, I make a lot of this because I want as many people as possible, especially the Gentiles. That's who I've been called to. To know of Jesus and his grace. I want you to know the life and the forgiveness and the love and the goodness of walking with your maker. And he says, while I dedicated my life to that, to fulfill my calling, there's a secondary thing that's going on in here. Because deep in my heart, I have this desire for my own people. And we've seen this throughout. Romans chapter 9, verse 3. He says, I would be cut off and cursed if my own people could know God. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, if it were possible, I would go to hell so that my brothers and sisters who are Jewish could understand the grace of Jesus Christ. I would do that. I would, I would forego my salvation and my eternity if somehow they could know. That's how much he longs for them. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, It is my heart's desire and my prayer that my brother, my own people, would know Jesus. And now he comes back again and he says, listen, I'm giving myself completely to the Gentiles. I am preaching to the Gentiles. I am serving the Gentiles. I am working for the gospel in the Gentiles. But deep inside what I really long for, besides you walking with Christ, is that my own people would see that and somehow become envious. And maybe some of them would go from their rejection of Christ to a reception of Christ. Let, let me illustrate it this way. And this may be a poor illustration, but I'll try it anyway. Let's say there's a, a, a couple, they have a son, uh, he's nine, he's getting ready to turn ten, we'll call him Evan. Evan's going to be a ten-year-old boy. And so they talk about his birthday party. And this year, instead of just saying, hey, Evan, you can choose three friends and we'll go to a movie and, and pizza or whatever, this year they say, Evan, you can invite as many friends as you want because we're going to blow this one out. And so he does. He invites 25 of his friends. And Evan loves Pokemon. And so this is going to be the Pokemon birthday party to end all birthday parties. Everything Pokemon. The invitations are Pokemon. And he sends them out to all of his friends. And not only that, they have Pokemon decorations. They have Pokemon plates. They have Pokemon napkins. They have a Pokemon cake. They have a Pokemon pinata. The wrapping paper? Pokemon. The whole thing is about Pokemon. And 25 of his friends come over, these 9, 10, 11-year-old boys, and they're so excited because they all love Pokemon. And they know this is a Pokemon party, and many of the presents are going to be Pokemon. Much of the wrapping paper is Pokemon. They all come, and it's going to be an incredible party. And they're going to have games, and they're going to have hot dogs, and they've got water balloons and slip and slides, and, and they've got this piñata, and it's this cake, and it's, it's going to be an amazing time. And as all the boys come and they're giving their presents and they're all there laughing as 9 and 10-year-old boys do, his parents, Evan's parents come out and he gives to all the little boys one of these. Little packages of Pokemon cards. Some of you are saying, what's he holding up there? It's not zigzag papers. They're little packages of Pokemon cards. And he gives it to all the boys. And so all the boys are ecstatic. They, they get party favors before the party even starts. And they start ripping them open. They start playing their Pokemon games. And they've got their cards and doing all this. And suddenly they realize, where's Evan? Evan's gone. And so the parents go looking. Where's her son? And they go back to his bedroom. And there he is on his bed. And he's got his arms crossed. And he's pouting. And he's crying. And they're like, Evan, what's, what's going on? Your friends are all out here. We've got the party already. And he's all upset. 
He said, you gave them my Pokemon cards. They said, no, 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 Evan, those are cards for them. We've got presents for you. There's way more cards for you than there are for them. But we just wanted them to have this for part of the party. He says, I don't want to go out there because it's not fair. This is supposed to be my party. And he gets all bent out of shape. And they beg him, come back out to the party. And he wants to have nothing to do with it at all. And so they say, okay, Evan, but you're welcome to join the party anytime you want. And the parents wisely go back out and continue on with the party. And they launch the water balloons, and they're having the Pokemon, they're pinning the tail on the Pikachu, and all this stuff is going on in the hopes that Evan will hear all the laughter, hear all the frivolity, hear all the fun that's happening, look out the window, see it, come around the corner, and maybe, just maybe, join the party again. And Paul says, I want you Gentiles to know Jesus, to thrive in Jesus, to flourish in Jesus, to have the most amazing life in Jesus. And what I hope is that my people will join the Pokemon party. I want them to come back. I want them to see what you have. And I want something inside them to say, I could be a part of that. I can have that. And so somehow, to save some of my people. How great would it be for them to join the party as well. Verse 15, he says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, which is a good thing, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's going to make it so much greater. And then at that point, he shifts gears and he throws out two different metaphors. One of them is a, is a, a lump of dough and some bread that comes out of a sacrifice from Numbers 15. We're not even going to talk about that. The other one is this picture of an olive tree, olive branches, an olive root, and all this stuff. That one we're going to spend a little more time with. And he throws this metaphor out of, of this olive tree and these, these branches. Now remember, this is the Mediterranean. Olive trees are common. They're everywhere. It, this would be a great illustration because everyone knows about olive trees. They all have olive trees. They see them every single day. And so he gives us kind of this horticulture metaphor example about an olive tree. In addition to it just being a part of their everyday life, it wasn't uncommon in Scripture. I mean, we looked at this one out of, out of Psalms uh, 52 where he says, but I am like an olive tree, this, this metaphor. I'm like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. But I think what Paul has in mind is another verse. Because there were multiple times when Israel had broken their covenant with God. And God would send his prophets, to get them back on track. And one of the times when Israel had broken their covenant with God, God had sent the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah uses a very similar picture. And I think Paul probably has this in mind. Paul would have been very, very familiar with Jeremiah and his writings. And Jeremiah says, the Lord called you, here's the picture, a thriving olive tree with fruit, fruit beautiful in form. What a beautiful picture of this fruitful, healthy, lush, thriving tree. That's what he says. That's, that's what you were called. But because of your rebellion, because you've broken the covenant, with the roar of a mighty storm, he will set it on fire, and its branches will be broken. This is from the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years before. So the branches of this olive tree will be broken. I think he has that picture. So hold that thought as he goes into this next metaphor. And he uses this, this horticultural thing that I know very little about, just enough to make it sound like I might know what I'm talking about, but I really don't. He starts talking about grafting 
in, in trees and stuff. I, I don't, I'm not a horticulture guy. I'm not an arbor guy. I'm not a nursery guy. I'm not a tree guy. Some of you are. But this I do know. In my yard, I have some birch trees, and they're very specific birch trees. They're Giacomani birch trees. Giacomani birch trees, to me, are the ultimate birch tree. The bark is stark white, beautiful white bark. The limbs from the Giacomani are very stately, and they grow almost at, like, almost like at a 45-degree angle, like someone went out there and measured it. The leaves are bigger than normal. The, the, the color is a deeper, darker, almost a hunter green. Beautiful. The Giacomani birch tree is a beautiful tree. Here's the problem. Giacomani birch trees are extremely sensitive and susceptible, and they don't live very well. They're, they're, they're kind, of a, kind of a high-maintenance tree. So arbor guys, tree, what, what are they called? Horticulturists, uh, nursery. Uh, what do you call yourself? Tree, tree people. They're, they... <laughs> They were children of the corn. Now they're people of the tree. So they, they will take a Giacomani tree, a, a sapling, and cut it off from its root and graft it on to a rootstock, to a root ball from a more common birch tree that's not nearly as beautiful or pretty. But this birch tree is not as susceptible to, to disease, can handle more harsh weather or soil conditions. So I've got some of these. And you can see right at the base, you can see where the bark goes from stark white to just this mottled, gnarled, a uh, mutt tree. I, I don't know what that's called. Well, a couple years ago, one of my, one of my Giacomani's died. These little, these little um, birch beetles or whatever bored in and killed it. Anyway, so I'm taking this Giacomani out, and I notice that from the root, bar, root ball, from this root stock, there's a, a little, a little, uh, yeah, shoot. There's a little shoot. And so I said, well, shoot. I think, <laughs> I think I'm going to see if this thing will grow. So I, I pull it out and without any kind of delicacy, and I go out and I dig a hole in my field and I throw it in there. Never watered it, never fertilized it, just thought, let's see what happens. That thing grows like a weed. Now, it's not pretty. The bark isn't beautiful white. It's kind of mottled gray or a, a tan on top, and it's kind of all gnarly. Leaves don't grow out of 45. They, or branches, they grow all over the place. The leaves are smaller, they're not as green, but two years ago, I accidentally backed over it with my riding lawnmower, scraped all the bark off it, has a little, it's still growing. <laughs> all right, that has nothing to do with anything, except now you know about some of the birch trees in my yard. So there's this grafting process. Paul uses that picture, and he says this, remember, he's talking to the Gentiles, and he says this, if some of the branches have been broken off, sound like Jeremiah? Some of Israel's branches have been broken off. And you, though a wild olive shoot, you've been called worse. <laughs> you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. It says, you're this wild olive shoot. You're this rogue olive shoot. And you've been grafted in among the others. And I can imagine Tertius is writing all this down, and he starts humming, and Paul says, what are you humming? And he says, well, it's just a little song I learned as a kid. One of these things is not like the others. It just doesn't belong. And Paul says, oh, yeah, that reminds me of a song. I listened to a story about a man named Jed. Like, it's like these, these are, are the clampets in Beverly. Hills, that is. 
They don't belong. They're outliers. They're not a part of it. He says, you're this wild shoot, and it's like you, you don't belong with all of this. And then he goes on, and he says this. Do not boast. Do not boast over those branches, the ones that have been broken. Israel, if you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Here's a cool little thing. We may get to this in three weeks. Yeah, three weeks. In Romans chapter 15, verse 12, he quote, don't look at it now, but just write that in the margin. He quotes a verse from the Old Testament that comes back to this beautiful, beautiful, anyway, little side note. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. Another version says, tremble. Like he's saying, listen, yeah, you got, you're a wild olive shoot. You got grafted in. But don't get all high and mighty. Don't get all arrogant. Don't start copping an attitude. Don't boast. Don't be arrogant. Don't get self-righteous self in your ingrafting into this tree. You're still a wild olive shoot. You understand that? And as I was thinking about this whole idea of, of these wild olive shoots that have no business being in this, this beautiful olive tree, it made me think of, of another illustration. And being as today is the first day of the preseason for the Seattle Seahawks, it's a football illustration. Some of you may remember 30 years ago, in 1987, three, I think it was three games into the season, the NFL players went on strike. Now, this wasn't the first time this had happened. It had happened five years before in 82, and that time the NFL lost millions and millions, could be billions of dollars. So they decided, we're not going to lose that many millions of dollars this year. Instead of playing to this game, we're going to go ahead and field teams. We're going to go ahead and hire non-union workers, and we're going to go ahead with the, with the season. And they did. They began to hire all the guys who didn't get drafted, all the guys who cut, all the guys who went north and played in the Canadian Football League, <laughs> all those guys who played at Western, uh, all, all those guys. Oh, oh, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Ooh, still too soon on that one. Sorry. Uh, all those guys all those guys who were a part of this fledgling arena football league, all these guys that played in their backyard. They just started high, just like, in fact, there was a movie, I think it's called The Replacements with Keanu Reeves. Anyway, never mind. So they hire all of these, all these guys who've got no business playing in the NFL. And some people were excited about it, and some were saying, this, this whole thing is, it's a farce, it's, what a waste. In fact, they began to nickname teams that were filled with these non-union players. Teams like the Dallas Rhinestone Cowboys, the New Orleans St. Elsewhere's, the Chicago Spare Bears, the Los Angeles Shams, this one's my, my, my favorite, the San Francisco Phony Niners. Even Seattle was called the Seattle Sea Scabs because they took these non-union workers and brought them in. And here are these guys and they got to play for three games. Now, if they were to get all filled with an attitude of like, check me out, I'm an NFL player. I get to play on the big field, albeit to an empty stadium. I get my name on my shirt. I'm a, I'm a player. I'm going to get myself an entourage. going to get a grill. going to get a Rolex. Gonna, like, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, buddy. Two weeks ago, you were delivering Domino's pizzas. You were pouring foundations. 
you're renting videos at Blockbuster. Don't get all arrogant. Don't get all cocky. Don't get all thinking they're going to be voting you into the Hall of Fame anytime soon. You got no business being here. It's only because of the kindness of the NFL and a little bit of their greed that you even get to do this. And Paul's saying, listen, Gentiles, you're engrafted, and it's only because of the kindness of your heavenly Father that you get to be a part of this. And on top of that, these other guys come off a strike. You know, these other branches that were broken, they start believing. They get back in. Verse 23. And if they, the broken branches, do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, wild thing, you don't belong here. And contrary to nature, we're grafted into a cultivated olive tree. He's saying, no one does this. It would be like someone saying, we're going to plant crabgrass on the golf green. No one does that. We're going to take a rescue mutt to the American Kennel Club to try and be best in show. No one does that. No one takes a wild olive shoot that ought to be trimmed off and, and thrown away and puts it into a cultivated olive tree. Well, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? It's like God's still pursuing his own people. Well, he says, and you're part of it too. And I think what we see through all of this is what Paul is saying to the Jewish folks and the Gentile folks. Beware the elder brother syndrome. Some of you are familiar with Jesus' story of the prodigal son, and it was that elder brother who got all self-righteous, who had an arrogant attitude, who was very judgmental and very condemning. He says, be careful. You're Jewish. You can get that elder brother attitude and think you're a choice people because you're a chosen people. If you're a Gentile, you can get that elder brother attitude because you're grafted in, but you're a wild olive shoot. And then he looks and he says, listen, because of your disobedience, God has been merciful to you. And because of their disobedience, you get to be a part of this. And if they're disobedient, why wouldn't God be merciful to them too? See, you're all disobedient. And he comes to this conclusion where he says in verse 32, For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may, he may have mercy on them all. All of you. We're all disobedient. None of us deserve to be a part of God's family. But he just has this mercy that he pours out on us, all of us. This kind of takes us back to where we were early in the book. In Romans chapter 3, it says the righteousness from God through, by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, there is no difference. There is no difference. For all have sinned. We're all disobedient. We're all rebellious. And we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us deserve any of it. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. See what he's saying? There is no difference. There is no difference. Jew, Gentile, chosen, grafted. You're all jacked up and you all receive God's mercy. That's the bad news, and that's the good news. It's an amazing thing. As he pours this out, 
In fact, uh, just a few verses earlier in chapter 10, verse 17, I think he says, there is no difference. There is one Lord who is Lord over them all, and he richly blesses anyone who calls on his name. And Paul goes through all this, and it's like all of a sudden he's just overwhelmed with the reality of how good God is, of how sovereign God is, of how gracious God is. And he just says, oh! And you can imagine Turdy's like, he's stroking out. He's been under too much stress, tension, pressure. He says, oh! And then he stops in the middle. And out of nowhere... He does this little last section in chapter 11. And some of your Bibles have a little thing on the, a word that talks about what this next section is called. What, what's the word? Doxology. So you're going, oh, we went to church and we sang that one. In fact, it's time for a seventh inning stretch. Stand up. Would you stand up real quick? And if you don't know this, just listen. Just stretch a little bit. If you know what, help me out, especially if you know parts. That'll be a lot of fun. All right? Praise God from I need to hear you. There we go. That's much better. Now, some of you thought doxology was just the title for that song. Doxology is a word that literally translated means glory statement. It's a glory statement. Doxa means glory. Logi, like logos, logos, word. It's a statement. And here's what's amazing. Paul gets through all of this deep, deep, rich theology, and all of a sudden he just bursts into this worship, this glory statement. I just want to say this. If your theology doesn't lead you to doxology, you've got bad theology or a hardened heart. That's the truth. Because the more you know about the true nature and character of God, if that doesn't cause you to worship, you've either got a false view of God or your heart is hardened. Those who know God the best spend 24-7 around the throne saying, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, doxology nonstop. If your theology doesn't lead to doxology, you've got bad theology or a hardened heart. There, take that one away for you. So Paul gets to this point, he's got all this theology, the depth of it, the wonder of it, the sovereignty, the mercy, the righteousness, the grace of God, and he just comes with this, this doxology, says, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. Like you can never plumb the, the depths of this. It's, it's inexhaustible. When he thinks back how God chose by grace Abraham, he gives this, this faith to, to, that Abraham has his faith and he gives him righteousness and he calls his people and they reject him and he uses that rejection to reach others but he longs for them to come back. He just sees how God has put this all together. He's like, oh, the depth. How unsearchable his judgments. You know what he's saying there? Inconceivable. <laughs> how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. There's like, when, you, when you're talking about the mighty, all-knowing God, there's no way you're going to fully understand all this. No way possible. In fact, I read this phrase. I loved it. He said, to fully understand the infinite dismantles the category. If we could fully understand the infinite, it would no longer be infinite. The infinite, by very nature, means we will not be able to fully understand it. And Paul's saying... Listen, you think this book is hard? I don't even understand it. 
I can't wait till someone writes a commentary and tell me what I'm, what I'm talking about. So, and then he, then he goes into these three questions, and the only correct answer to these questions is no one. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Paul, the greatest theologian who has ever graced the planet, he says, I don't. Who has ever been his counselor? Like if God had an idea and he wanted to just kind of have a sounding board, who's he going to come to? I mean, who's going to be his counselor? And who has ever given to God that God should repay him? And he says, you know what? If you think, well, well I have, no, 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 no. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Anything you were to give to God, he gave to you in the first place. You're just giving it back to God. Your life is from him. He's the source of your life. Your life is sustained by him. Your life is redeemed through him. And your life is to him. Someone help me out with this. Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief aim of a man? You guys never went to catechism. Seriously? You guys didn't go to Linden Christian? <laughs> the chief aim of a man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the goal of our life. He says your life was from God. It's through God. It's for God. To him be the glory forever. Amen. See, here's the truth for us, because some of this stuff is deep. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, we shouldn't ask questions, dig in, study it, you know, research it. I'm not saying that. But the truth is this. We don't need to understand everything to praise the God who does. We don't have to have every one of our questions answered to have a time of doxology. If your theology does not result in doxology, it's bad theology You've got a hardened heart. Now, that's chapter 11. Next week, chapter 12, it gets real practical. But let me give you something to take away with chapter 11. This week, something I want you to do every single day, at least once a day. Every single day, I want you to look at a tree. I don't care which tree. It can be the same tree. It can be a different tree. And look at a specific limb. And it will be helpful if that limb is gnarly, twisted, distorted, out of shape, something that a sucker shoots, something that should be trimmed off. The, the worse that limb looks, the better. You find that limb every single day, and you say these five words. You might want to write this down. That's me in God's tree. That's me in God's tree. I'm the wild olive shoot. I'm the one that doesn't belong. It's only by God's grace that Jew or Gentile, chosen or grafted, get to be a part of God's family tree. So every day, find a tree with some weird old branch and say, that's me. Romans chapter 11, that's me. And let that theology lead to doxology. So I've asked that we would end with kind of this glory statement as well. I'm going to invite you to, to stand. It's a very simple song, but even part of this song talks about how our very breath is from God and we ought to use it to praise him.